Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're just trying to keep you up in the literature, so listen up and you'll be able to keep up. Alright, let's talk about Group A Strep. It's kind of becoming a problem lately. After that, what the heck is Candida auris and why you should care? Then high sensitivity troponins, let's talk about that. Followed by, what if we don't have to use a neuromuscular blockade? Could Remifentanil do the trick? No, it can't, but there's at least some reasoning for why you could make a case to at least have tried it. And then finally, positional puncture preferences. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, so you're not going to be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all the articles are great, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org, and remember that we never want money to be a barrier to the best patient care possible. So, if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just reach out and we'll help out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by Gabby Leonard, Vivian Lay, Jason Lesnick, Alex Clark, and Clay Smith. Alright, let's jump over to the third article. Titled, High Sensitivity Cardiac Troponin and the 2021 AHA, ACC, ASE, Chest, Same, SCCT, and SC. MR guidelines for the evaluation and diagnosis of acute chest pain out of the journal Circulation. Now, just dude, tropes. And who are all these people who are still holdouts who aren't using high sensitivity tropes? Get with it, people. Switch over to the high sensitivity and forget anything else because, well, this is just better. Now, can you believe that the FDA only approved high sensitivity troponins in the U.S. in 2017? That wasn't that long ago. It feels like it was a little bit late in the game to me. Now, the fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction recommends using the 99th percentile of the upper reference limit as the threshold for myocardial injury. That sounds easy if you're past the limit. Then you have myocardial injury. That's straightforward. That's fine. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated when you consider that the line changes depending on your sex. It's lower for women. But honestly, I'd say your EMR should be able to take care of that for you. More annoying, but more for the research perspective, is that the upper limit is assay-specific. But again, your EMR should be able to handle that problem. Now, even if you're charting on paper, I'd be shocked to hear that your labs aren't coming to you digitally. So EMR is saving the day on this one. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is that the 2021 AHA guidelines state that for patients with acute chest pain, a normal ECG, and symptoms suggestive of ACS that began at least three hours before the emergency department visit, a single high-sensitivity troponin concentration that is below the limit of detection on initial measurement is reasonable to exclude myocardial infarction. Okay, exclude an MI, I love it. The devil, though, is in the details and that the troponin having to be below the level of detection. The problem here is that in the U.S., the FDA only allows labs to report troponin values within the limit of quantitation. So the number that's reported is actually accurate to what the number that they say it is actually is. The problem here is that the limit of detection is typically below the level of quantitation, so it's possible to be sort of above the limit of detection, but sort of below the limit of quantitation, and not even really know it, depending on your assay. 
So you can't really make recommendations like the guidelines I just read have in the US because we can't follow that to the letter, even though that's what would be best because the evidence best supports that approach. I personally think we're probably splitting hairs there a little bit. The difference is probably moot. I can't imagine that that many patients fall into that narrow gap that we're missing, but I certainly agree that it would be best just not to have that gap at all. Anyways, one way to sort of get around this a little bit is to look at the change in the troponin or the delta troponin. This is helpful because some people have chronic detectable troponin levels, troponemia as we sometimes call it, and this is typical of the elderly, the critically ill, and those with kidney disease. So for all these reasons, of course, troponins are very obviously very helpful, and they could actually be a little bit more helpful than they tend to be in the United States because we rule out myocardial infarction a lot in the emergency department, and we could be doing this slightly faster. The Europeans already seem to know how to do this. They use a one or two hour troponin rule instead of the popular three hours that's seen in North America. Thankfully, American guidelines have actually decreased their support for the three hour rule because the one and two hour rules, well, the evidence is really quite good and there's reason to switch in that direction. Anyways, if you just can't get enough about high sensitivity troponins, then you could read this article in full. It has a lot more details and just stuff to talk about. In a spoonful, we spoke just a tiny bit about the intricacies of high sensitivity troponins. And then we jump over to the last article. Titled, Is Lateral Decubitus or Upright Positioning Optimal for Lumbar Puncture Success in a Teaching Hospital? Out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, how do most people, at least nowadays, learn to do lumbar punctures for the first time? Well, I would argue that it's not by doing lumbar punctures at all, but actually by doing spinals in their anesthesia rotations in medical school. Spinals, as far as I usually see them done, are often done in the sitting position. I like this approach. It seems to make sense logically because then you get the spine pretty straight. You can see when it's not straight. You can even, you know, because people usually have are, are standing and they're straight up when you're testing for uh, scoliosis anyway. So being sitting, this makes sense that this would be a way to see how straight the spine is. And then you can just try to aim down midline. Hope that made sense. It does mean that your bevel actually has to point to the left or the right, though. And some people just seem cognitively incapable of handling that notion. But anyways, seems like no one can decide which way is actually better to do a lumbar puncture, lateral decubitus or sitting. If we knew the better way to do it, then of course we could just focus on that and less pokes, all the better for everybody. Though I suppose it bears mentioning that you can really only measure the pressure when the patient is lying down. So if you need the pressure, or you want the pressure, they can't really be sitting. All right, so the authors did a randomized prospective trial at a level one trauma center that included 116 adult and pediatric patients that had lumbar punctures done for a variety of indications. Most of the LPs were done by emergency medicine residents. The patients were randomly assigned to either lateral decubitus or upright position after enrollment. Now, after the LP was done, all the data was self-reported, and the primary outcome was a successful LP as defined by getting at least 1.5 mLs of CSF in five or less attempts. Overall, the LPs were successful in 85% of the time in the lateral position and 80% of the time in the upright position with an overall difference of about 5%. This was not considered significant, nor was there a difference in any of the secondary outcomes, such as the number of insertions or redirections, first pass success, failures, or times the site was contaminated. 
Honestly, I think this is another example of just do what you're most comfortable with, and that's probably going to give you the best success rates. Classically, the lateral positioning is taught, but unless you're getting a pressure, it shouldn't really matter. As a side note, as was picked up by our very astute Clay Smith, this study was likely quite underpowered to actually find a difference here. They were aiming for a difference of 5%, and for this they sought a sample of 116 patients. Now, this would be enough power, but only if you were expecting a huge difference in the two populations. Otherwise, this is just simply not well-powered enough. Just a comment, though. In a spoonful, sitting or laying down, one doesn't seem inherently better, except if you're trying to get a pressure. So just pick your favorite for now, unless you want to pressure. Then, of course, lay down. All right, let's do our wrap-up. Well, what did we learn today? Third, high-sensitivity tropes. Uh, just get on board, people. Join us. Use them. They're great. And then finally, LP success appears to be similar whether you've got your patient sitting up or lying them down, so pick your poison. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where we also can give you access to the newsletter, which is great and gives you a nice little bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Now, if you're feeling like you missed out a little bit, you'd like to hear more of what you just heard, 250% more, then come over and join us in the members feed. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and then hopefully save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.